Chapter Seventeen, Part One of the Jacket by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Barry Eads. You, my reader, will remember far back at the beginning of this narrative how, when a little lad on the Minnesota farm, I looked at the photographs of the Holy Land and recognized places and pointed out changes in places. Also, you will remember. As I described the scene I had witnessed of the healing of the lepers, I told the missionary that I was a big man with a big sword, astride a horse and looking on. That childhood incident was merely a trailing cloud of glory, as Wordsworth put it. Not in entire forgetfulness had I, little Darrell Standing, come into the world. But those memories of other times and places that glimmered up to the surface of my child consciousness soon failed and faded. In truth, as is the way with all children, the shades of the prison house closed about me, and I remembered my mighty past no more. Every man born of woman has a past mighty as mine. Very few men born of women have been fortunate enough to suffer years of solitary and straitjacketing. That was my good fortune. I was enabled to remember once again, and to remember, among other things, the time when I sat astride a horse and beheld the lepers healed. My name was Ragnar Ludbrok. I was in truth a large man. I stood half a head above the Romans of my legion. But that was later, after the time of my journey from Alexandria to Jerusalem, that I came to command a legion. It was a crowded life, that. Books and books and years of writing could not record it all. So I shall briefen and no more than hint at the beginnings of it. Now all is clear and sharp, save the very beginning. I never knew my mother. I was told that I was tempest-born, on a beaked ship in the northern sea, of a captured woman, after a sea-fight in a sack of a coastal stronghold. I never heard the name of my mother. She died at the height of the tempest. She was of the North Danes, so old Lingord told me. He told me much that I was too young to remember, yet little could he tell. A sea-fight in a sack, battle and plunder and torch, a flight seaward in the long ships to escape destruction upon the rocks, and a killing strain and struggle against the frosty foundering seas. Who, then, should know aught or mark a stranger woman in her hour with her feet fast set on the way of death? Many died. Men marked the living women, not the dead. Sharp bitten into my child imagination are the incidents immediately after my birth, as told me by old Lingord. Lingord, too old to labor at the sweeps, had been surgeon, undertaker, and midwife of the huddled captives in the open midships. So I was delivered in storm, with the spume of the cresting sea's salt upon me. Not many hours old was I, when Tostig Lubbrok first laid eyes on me. His was the lean ship, and his, the seven other lean ships, that had made the foray, fled the rapine, and won through the storm. Tostig Lubbrok was also called Maspella, meaning the burning for he was ever aflame with wrath. Brave he was, and cruel he was, with no heart of mercy in that great chest of his. Ere the sweat of battle had dried on him, leaning on his axe, he ate the heart of Nungren, after the fight at Hosfart. Because of mad anger, he sold his son, Garolf, into slavery to the Jutes. I remember, under the smoky rafters of Brunanborough, how he used to call for the skull of Gutlaf for a drinking-beaker. Spiced wine he would have from no other cup than the skull of Gutlof. And to him, on the reeling deck after the storm was past, old Lingord brought me. 
I was only hours old, wrapped naked in a salt-crusted wolfskin. Now it happens, being prematurely born, that I was very small. "'Ho, ho, a dwarf!' cried Tostig, lowering a pot of mead half-drained from his lips to stare at me. The day was bitter, but they say he swept me naked from the wolfskin, and by my foot, between thumb and forefinger, dangled me to the bite of the wind. "'A roach!' he ho-hoed. "'A shrimp! A sea-louse!' and he made to squash me between huge forefinger and thumb, either of which, Lingord avers, was thicker than my leg or thigh. But another whim was upon him. The youngling is a thirst. Let him drink. And therewith, head downward, into the half-pot of mead, he thrust me, and might well have drowned in this drink of men, I, who had never known a mother's breast in the briefness of time I had lived, had it not been for Lingord. But when he plucked me forth from the brew, Tostig Ludbroke struck him down in a rage. We rolled on the deck, and the great bear-hounds, captured in the fight with the North Danes just passed, sprang upon us. "'Ho, ho!' roared Tostig Ludbroke, as the old man and I and the wolfskin were mauled and worried by the dogs. But Lingord gained his feet, saving me but losing the wolfskin to the hounds. Tostig Ludbroke finished the mead and regarded me, while Lingord knew better than to beg for mercy where was no mercy. Hop o' my thumb, quoth Tostig. By Odin, the women of the North Danes are a scurvy breed. They birth dwarfs, not men. Of what use is this thing? He will never make a man. Listen you, Lingord, grow him to be a drink-boy at Brunenborough, and have an eye on the dogs, lest they slobber him down by mistake as a meat-crumb from the table. I knew no woman. Old Lingord was midwife and nurse, and for nursery, was reeling decks and the stamp and trample of men in battle or storm. How I survived pooling infancy, God knows. I must have been born iron in a day of iron, for survive I did, to give the lie to Tostig's promise of dwarfhood. I outgrew all beakers and tankards, and not for long could he half-drown me in his mead-pot. This last was a favorite feat of his. It was his raw humor, a sally esteemed by him delicious wit. My first memories are of Tostig Ludbroke's beaked ships and fighting men, and of the feast-hall at Prunenborough when our boats lay beached beside the frozen fjord. For I was made drink-boy, and amongst my earliest recollections are toddling with the wine-filled skull of Gutlof to the head of the table where Tostig bellowed to the rafters. They were madmen, all of madness, but it seemed the common way of life to me who knew naught else. They were men of quick rages and quick battling. Their thoughts were ferocious, so was their eating ferocious, and their drinking, and I grew like them. How else could I grow, when I served the drink to the bellowings of drunkards, and to the scalds singing of Yali and the bold Hogni, and of the Niflung's gold, and of Gudrun's revenge on Atli, when she gave him the hearts of his children and hers, to eat while battle swept the benches, tore down the hangings raped from southern coasts, and littered the feasting board with swift corpses. Oh, I too had a rage, well tutored in such school. I was but eight when I showed my teeth at a drinking between the men of Brunenborough and the Jutes, who came as friends with the Jarl Argod in his three long ships. I stood at Tostig Ludbroke's shoulder, holding the skull of Gutlof that steamed and stank with the hot-spiced wine, and I waited while Tostig should complete his ravings against the North Dane men. But still he raved, and still I waited till he caught breath of fury to assail the North Dane woman. 
whereat I remembered my North Dane mother, and saw my rage red in my eyes, and smote him with the skull of Gutloff, so that he was wine-drenched and wine-blinded and fire-burnt. And as he reeled unseen, smashing his great groping clutches through the air at me, I was in and short-dirked him thrice in belly, thigh, and buttock, then which I could reach no higher up the mighty frame of him. And the Jarl Argod's steel won out, and his jutes joining him as he shouted, A bear-cub, a bear-cub, by Odin let the cub fight! And there, under that roaring roof of Brunenboro, the babbling drink-boy of the North Danes, fought with mighty Ludbrook. And when, with one stroke, I was flung, dazed and breathless, half the length of that great board, my flying body mowing down pots and tankards, Ludbrook cried out command, Out with him! Fling him to the hounds! But the Jarl would have it no, and clapped Ludbrook on the shoulder, and asked me as a gift of friendship. And south I went, when the ice passed out of the fjord, in Jarl Argod's ships. I was made drink-boy and sword-bearer to him, and in lieu of other name, was called Ragnar Ludbrook. Argod's country was neighbor to the Frisians, and a sad, flat country of fog and fen it was. I was with him for three years, to his death, always at his back, whether hunting swamp-wolves or drinking in the great hall where Elgiva, his young wife, often sat among her women. I was with Argod in South Foray, with his ships along what would be now the coast of France. And there I learned that still south were warmer seasons and softer climes and women. But we brought back Argod wounded to death and slow dying, and we burned his body on a great pyre, with Elgiva in her golden corslet beside him singing and there were household slaves in golden collars that burned of a plenty therewith her and nine female thralls and eight male slaves of the angles that were of gentle birth and battle captured and there were live hawks so burned and the two hawk boys with their birds but i the drink boy ragnar lodbrok did not burn i was eleven and unafraid and had never worn woven cloth on my body and as the flames sprang up and Algiva sang her death-song, and the thralls and slaves screeched their unwillingness to die, I tore away my fastenings, leaped, and gained the fens, the gold collar of my slavehood still on my neck, footing it with the hounds loose to tear me down. In the fens were wild men, masterless men, fled slaves, and outlaws, who were hunted in sport as the wolves were hunted. For three years I knew never roof nor fire, and I grew hard as the frost, and would have stolen a woman from the jutes, but that the Frisians by mischance in a two-days hunt ran me down. By them I was looted of my gold collar, and traded for two wolfhounds to Edvi, of the Saxons, who put an iron collar on me, and later made of me and five other slaves a present to Otdel of the East Angles. I was thrall and fighting man, until, lost in an unlucky raid far to the east beyond our marches, I was sold among the Huns, and was a swineherd until I escaped south into the great forests, and was taken in as a free man by the Teftons, who were many, but who lived in small tribes, and drifted southward before the Hun advance. And up from the south, into the great forests, came the Romans, fighting men all, who pressed us back upon the Huns. It was a crushage of the peoples for lack of room, and we taught the Romans what fighting was, although in truth we were no less well taught by them. But always I remembered the sun of the Southland that I had glimpsed in the ships of Argod, and it was my fate, caught in this south drift of the Tevtons, to be captured by the Romans and be brought back to the sea 
which I had not seen since I was lost away from the East Angles. I was made a sweep-slave in the galleys, and it was as a sweep-slave that I at last came to Rome. All the story is too long of how I became a free man, a citizen, and a soldier, and of how, when I was thirty, I journeyed to Alexandria, and from Alexandria to Jerusalem. Yet what I have told from the time when I was baptized in the mead-pot of Tostig Ludbrook, I have been compelled to tell in order that you may understand what manner of man rode in through the Jaffa gate and drew all eyes upon him. Well might they look. They were small breeds, lighter-boned and lighter-thewed, these Romans and Jews, and a blonde like me they had never gazed upon. All along the narrow streets they gave before me, but stood to stare wide-eyed at this yellow man from the north, or from God knew where, so far as they knew aught of the matter. Practically all of Pilate's troops were auxiliaries, save for a handful of Romans about the palace and the twenty Romans who rode with me. Often enough have I found the auxiliaries good soldiers, but never so steadily dependable as the Romans. In truth, they were better fighting men the year round than were we men of the north, who fought in great moods and sulked in great moods. The Roman was invariably steady and dependable. There was a woman from the court of Antipas, who was a friend of Pilate's wife and whom I met at Pilate's the night of my arrival. I shall call her Miriam, for Miriam was the name I loved her by. If it were merely difficult to describe the charm of women, I would describe Miriam. But how describe emotion in words? The charm of woman is wordless. It is different from perception that culminates in reason, for it arises in sensation and culminates in emotion which, be it admitted, is nothing else than supersensation. In general, any woman has fundamental charm for any man. When this charm becomes particular, then we call it love. Miriam had this particular charm for me. Verily, I was co-partner in her charm. Half of it was my own, man's life in me, that leapt and met her wide-armed, and made in me all that she was desirable, plus all my desire of her. Miriam was a grand woman. I use the term advisedly. She was fine-bodied, commanding, over and above the average Jewish woman in stature and in line. She was an aristocrat in social caste. She was an aristocrat by nature. All her ways were large ways, generous ways. She had brain, she had wit, and above all, she had womanliness. As you shall see, it was her womanliness that betrayed her and me in the end. Brunette, olive-skinned, oval-faced, her hair was blue-black with its blackness, and her eyes were twin wells of black. Never more pronounced types of blonde and brunette in man and woman met than in us. And we met on the instant. There was no self-discussion, no waiting, wavering, to make certain. She was mine the moment I looked upon her. And by the same token she knew that I belonged to her above all men. I strode to her, she half-lifted from her couch as if drawn upward to me. And then we looked with all our eyes, blue eyes and black, until Pilate's wife, a thin, tense, overwrought woman, laughed nervously. And while I bowed to the wife and gave greeting, I thought I saw Pilate give Miriam a significant glance, as if to say, Is he not all I promised? For he had had word of my coming from Sulpicius Curanius, the legate of Syria. As well, had Pilate and I been known to each other before ever he journeyed out to be procurator over the Semitic volcano of Jerusalem. Much talk we had that night, 
especially Pilate, who spoke in detail of the local situation, and who seemed lonely and desirous to share his anxieties with someone, and even to bid for counsel. Pilate was of the solid type of Roman, with sufficient imagination intelligently to enforce the iron policy of Rome, and not unduly excitable under stress. But on this night it was plain that he was worried. The Jews had got on his nerves. They were too volcanic, spasmodic, eruptive. And further, they were subtle. The Romans had a straight, forthright way of going about anything. The Jews never approached anything directly, save backwards, when they were driven by compulsion. Left to themselves, they always approached by indirection. Pilate's irritation was due, as he explained, to the fact that the Jews were ever intriguing to make him, and through him Rome, the cat's paw in the matter of their religious dissensions. As well known to me, Rome did not interfere with the religious notions of its conquered peoples, but the Jews were forever confusing the issues and giving a political cast to purely unpolitical events. Pilate waxed eloquent over the diverse sects and the fanatic uprisings and riotings that were continually occurring. Ludbrook, he said, one can never tell what little summer cloud of their hatching may turn into a thunderstorm roaring and rattling about one's ears. I am here to keep order and quiet. Despite me, they make the place a hornet's nest. Far rather would I govern Scythians or savage Britons than these people who are never at peace about God. Right now there is a man up to the north, a fisherman turned preacher and miracle worker, who as well as not may soon have all the country by the ears and my recall on its way from Rome. This was the first I had heard of the man called Jesus, and I remarked it at the time. Not until afterward did I remember him, when the little summer cloud had become a full-fledged thunderstorm. I have had report of him, Pilate went on. He is not political, there is no doubt of that, but trust Caiaphas and Hanan behind Caiaphas to make this fisherman a political thorn with which to prick Rome and ruin me. This Caiaphas, I have heard of him as high priest. Then who is this Hanan? I asked. The real high priest, a cunning fox, Pilate explained. Caiaphas was appointed by Gratus, but Caiaphas is the shadow and the mouthpiece of Hanan. They have never forgiven you for that little matter of the votive shields, Miriam teased. Whereupon, as a man will when his sore place is touched, Pilate launched upon the episode, which had been an episode no more at the beginning, but which had nearly destroyed him. In all innocence before his palace he had affixed two shields with votive inscriptions. Ere the consequent storm that burst on his head had passed, the Jews had written their complaints to Tiberius, who approved them and reprimanded Pilate. I was glad, a little later, when I could have talk with Miriam. Pilate's wife had found opportunity to tell me about her. She was of old royal stock. Her sister was wife of Philip, tetriarch of Galanitis and Batania. Now this Philip was brother of Antipas, tetriarch of Galilee and Puria, and both were sons of Herod, called by the Jews the Great. Miriam, as I understood, was at home in the courts of both tetriarchs, being herself of the blood. Also, when a girl, she had been betrothed to Archelaus at the time he was ethnarch of Jerusalem. She had a goodly fortune in her own right, so that marriage had not been compulsory. To boot, she had a will of her own, and was doubtless hard to please in so important a matter as husbands. 
It must have been in the very air we breathe, for in no time Miriam and I were at it on the subject of religion. Truly, the Jews of that day battened on religion, as did we on fighting and feasting. For all my stay in that country, there was never a moment when my wits were not buzzing with the endless discussions of life and death, law and God. Now Pilate believed neither in gods nor devils nor anything. Death to him was the blackness of unbroken sleep, and yet, during his years in Jerusalem, he was ever vexed with the inescapable fuss and fury of things religious. Why, I had a horse-boy on my trip into Idumea, a wretched creature that could never learn to saddle, and who yet could talk, and most learnedly, without breath, from nightfall to sunrise, on the hair-splitting differences in the teaching of all the rabbis from Shemaiah to Gamliel. But to return to Miriam. You believe you are immortal, she was soon challenging me. Then why do you fear to talk about it? Why burden my mind with thoughts about certainties, I countered. But are you certain, she insisted? Tell me about it. What is it like, your immortality? And when I had told her of Nephelheim and Muspel, of the birth of the giant Emer from the snowflakes, of the cow on Humbla, and the Fenrir and Luki, and the frozen Shirtons, as I say, when I had told her all of this, and of Thor and Odin and our own Valhalla, she clapped her hands and cried out with sparkling eyes, Oh, you barbarian, you great child, you yellow giant thing of the frost, you believer of old nurse tales and stomach satisfactions, but the spirit of you, that which cannot die, where will it go when your body is dead? As I have said, Valhalla, I answered, and my body shall be there too. Eating, drinking, fighting? And loving, I added, we must have our women in heaven, else what is heaven for? I do not like your heaven, she said. It is a mad place, a beast place, a place of frost and storm and fury. And your heaven, I questioned, is always unending summer, with the year at the ripe for the fruits and flowers and growing things. I shook my head and growled. I do not like your heaven. It is a sad place, a soft place, a place for weaklings and eunuchs and fat, sobbing shadows of men. My remarks must have glamoured her mind, for her eyes continued to sparkle, and mine was half a guess that she was leading me on. My heaven, she said, is the abode of the blessed. Valhalla is the abode of the blessed, I asserted, for look you, who cares for flowers where flowers always are? In my country, after the iron winter breaks and the sun drives away the long night, the first blossoms twinkling on the melting ice edge are things of joy, and we look and look again. And fire, I cried out, great glorious fire, a fine heaven yours where a man cannot properly esteem a roaring fire under a tight roof with wind and snow a drive outside. A simple folk, you, she was back at me, you build a roof and a fire in a snowbank and call it heaven. In my heaven we do not have to escape the wind and snow. No, I objected. We build roof and fire to go forth from into the frost and storm and to return to from the frost and storm. Man's life is fashioned for battle with frost and storm. His very fire and roof he makes by his battling. I know. For three years once I never knew roof nor fire. I was sixteen and a man, ere ever I wore woven cloth on my body. 
I was birthed in storm and battle, and my swaddling cloth was a wolfskin. Look at me, and see what manner of man lives in Valhalla. And look, she did, all a glamour, and cried out, You great yellow giant thing of a man! Then she added pensively, Almost it saddens me that there may not be such men in my heaven. It is a good world, I consoled her. Good is the plan and wide. There is room for many heavens. It would seem that to each is given the heaven that is his heart's desire. A good country, truly, there beyond the grave. I doubt not I shall leave our feast halls and raid your coasts of sun and flowers and steal you away. My mother was so stolen. And in the pause I looked at her, and she looked at me, and dared to look, and my blood ran fire. By Odin, this was a woman. What might have happened I know not, for Pilate, who had ceased from his talk with Ambivius, and for some time had sat grinning, broke the pause. A rabbi, a Teutoburg rabbi, he gibbed. A new preacher and a new doctrine come to Jerusalem. Now will there be more dissensions and riotings and stonings of prophets. The gods save us. It is a madhouse. Ludbrok, I little thought it of you. Yet here you are, spouting and fuming as wildly as any madman from the desert, about what shall happen to you when you are dead. One life at a time, Ludbrok. It saves trouble. It saves trouble. Go on, Miriam, go on, his wife cried. She had sat in trance during the discussion, with hands tightly clasped, and the thought flickered up in my mind that she had already been corrupted by the religious folly of Jerusalem. At any rate, as I was to learn in the days that followed, she was unduly bent upon such matters. She was a thin woman, as if wasted by fever. Her skin was tight-stretched, yet it seemed I could look through her hands did she hold them between me and the light. She was a good woman, but highly nervous, and at times fancy flighted about shades and signs and omens. Nor was she above seeing visions and hearing voices. As for me, I had no patience with such weaknesses. Yet was she a good woman with no heart of evil. End of chapter 17, part 1